Hello and welcome to episode 32 of the Asian Cinema Film Club. I'm your host as always, Edward Jones, and joining me, of course, is the Professor, Mr. Stephen Palmer. Good evening, everyone. 32. 32. <laughs> oh, my word. We're just stacking them up here. I'd never have guessed we'd have managed this, but yay us. And uh, tonight we're going to be talking about Antiporno from 2016, I want to say. Yep, that's right. Yep. Yep, we're going to, as I said, we're going to be talking about uh, Tion Sono's revivalist of the Roman porno genre with uh, Antiporno, um, a film which I think is going to provide um, an interesting discussion, to say the least. As well as that, we're also going to be uh, having a quick look at the history of the uh, Roman porno genre and um, certainly going to be diving a bit deeper into the genre it uh, homages, which is probably, when it comes to Asian cinema, one of the lesser-known ones out there and probably with good reason because it is kind of one of the sleazier ones and, you know, we're going to, uh, as I said, we're going to be uh, exploring that bit further when we uh, come to it a bit later in the show. Um, but before then, we obviously have to ask what you've been watching. And uh, since the last show, Stephen, has anything been sort of on your radar at all? I was just trying to think if I'd actually seen anything since I last spoke to you. Hmm. Um, I'm nothing, certainly nothing Asian-wise. I've been doing some stuff from my other podcast, um, doing some more Norwegian films. I'm on a bit of a Scandinavian kick at the moment. Um sort of looking at things in more normal genres and just seeing how other people do them really so I posted a new episode this week and um, I'll be also I'm going to help somebody with another blog that they're doing I'm going to do some articles for them over this year which will have an Asian cinema tinge to them so I'll um, I'll announce more probably in the next episode but there'll be some more uh, more professor goodness for people to read <laughs> very nice well for myself it's, it's still also been a pretty sort of uh, thin schedule in terms of watching things um, but first of all I have to talk about into the anime from this year which is uh, from netflix and is while it promises to provide an introduction to anime what it actually does is basically showcase the little um output for anime because like everyone really they've sort of jumped on the anime bandwagon after years and years of uh, neglecting the anime section in recent uh, year or so they've sort of really sort of stepped up and started buying in some key titles such as like um full metal alchemist and Neo, more recently neon genesis evangelium so i was kind of interested to see what they would do because the only sort of intros to anime we had were we had a couple we had one produced by the bbc where i think they were still calling it manga because manga entertainment were the only ones in sort of importing anime into the uk um and the other one was uh produced by channel 4 both of them featuring uh, helen mccarthy so they got that sort of seal of approval to them but uh she is of course nowhere to be seen in this wretched hour <laughs> that uh you can sort of squander if you've got nothing else to watch on netflix and uh yeah basically this is just a really horrible horrible Production. It's supposed to be a documentary, but it's as I said, it's just basically them showcasing their titles. And uh, in particular, we get to meet some really annoying people, such as Castlevania producer Adi Shankar, who opening opens with the statement of "I'm a time traveler," as well as following up a little later in the interview by saying, "I have a power glove." 
And as a child of the 80s, I have to say that nobody thought the Power Glove was cool back then, and they certainly don't now. But uh, yeah, we have to deal with this jackass who's, um, we're supposed to believe, is also the Tarantino of anime. Take away from that what you mean. He sort of like sets the standard of the downward spiral that that it really descends into as uh, director Alice Burinovsk narration can't decide whether it's going to be insightful or sleazy as it points out such interesting facts as uh, the fact that Japan spent cuts down more trees for for manga than it does for toilet roll so yay us um, at the same time the whole look at Japanese society feels very dated and uh, I believe a lot of people from the word word um, orientalism when talking about this movie but it is absolutely wretched and just avoided at all costs um something to definitely check out though on the more western side of things would be tarantino's latest joint uh once more time in hollywood we talked about it a couple of times on the show in particular mike uh, moe's portrayal of bruce lee and having obviously seen the film now i can say that uh i think shannon's way off in her disapproval of it the scene that I think everyone's coming away from this film and talking about where he fights uh, Brad Pitt's stuntman is just a really fantastic sequence. And I have to say that Mike Moe does a really great job of emulating the iconic figure. The only problem I have is that when he takes off the sunglasses, because here we have a performance and certainly a look that is very fine when you look at it. But as soon as he takes the sunglasses off, he does not have the the same eye or face or such as Bruce Lee and it becomes very obvious that he's obviously not the uh, cunning clone that we've, we've all thought he was from obviously what they shown us in the trailers but no it's a fun portrayal of Bruce Lee and certainly ties into this vision alternate vision of uh, Hollywood that Tarantino's presenting here for what may potentially be the uh, the film before his last which uh, hopefully it won't be but you know we have to wait and see but Demon, did you actually get out to see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? I haven't had a chance to see it yet. I'm okay. hoping to catch it this weekend. It's um, good. Yeah, um, I've seen... It, it's certainly getting people talking, which I think is a good thing. Um, I haven't seen the last couple of Tarantinos at the cinema, and I've got to be honest with you, you know what I feel about long films. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> I'll have to make sure I have some fizzy pop or something to make sure I stay awake because however good it is, I don't think I can last nearly three hours in the cinema. To be honest, it, it, it pretty much flies by. It's a, it's an interesting experience. Yeah, certainly when we talk about Margot Robbie, I know there's been a lot of criticism pressed about the fact that she has less lines than the guys, but really she does not need those lines as she does more when she's not talking in this movie. And just with simple gestures and, and movements, um, she's just absolutely fantastic. And she continues to be this human chameleon like figure who's able to constantly embody these interesting roles, be it Harley Quinn or Tonya Harding or uh, even when she's like doing the early stuff such as like Wolf of Wall Street, she just constantly is on form and she's just more than just, you know, the pretty girl to sell your movie. And I think she's really gonna be a talent to watch. I think if she continues to pick interesting projects and keep challenging herself the way she's been doing, I think she's definitely gonna be someone worth watching and certainly her portrayal as Sharon Tate is just fantastic with the scene of her watching the Wrecking Squad in the cinema, probably up there with my most perfect shots for this year. So Definitely one that I'm uh, 
gonna be picking up when that comes out on DVD. Also, we've got the exciting news that all our pestering of Criterion has paid off clearly, as they have announced that the Godzilla collection is going to be heading to UK shores now. So finally, we're going to be getting a nice collection of these movies, which for years have sort of bypassed us on the distribution channels. So finally, uh, UK fans are going to be able to get their hands on the this new set, which is going to f look at the shower era films, which is 1954 to 1975. At the same time, coming with a little bit of a hefty price tag at £150. So uh, maybe one that you're going to have to uh, start saving your paper money for. Um, Stephen, I know you said that you're out already as soon as you had that price tag. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's not a lot of detail on the Amazon website about it either, although the box does look, well, it looks very Arrow, doesn't it? <laughs> kind of, um, I don't know, it's not Arrow, though, is it? it's Quaterion. Yeah, it's, um, it's sort of a, a pop pop art version of Godzilla. It looks kind of cool. You get lots of this. There's going to be a lot of crap on here. I'm uh, not crap. A lot, a lot of film on here. Let's say that, and probably a lot of extra content. I'm hoping. Um, but 150 pounds for anything. I've bought cars for less than that. I would be they worried if cars. you buy a car for 150 pounds. <laughs> uh, the very first car I had didn't cost that much. But um, that's that, that that that's a lot. That's a lot of money. Now, obviously, I know that. If I was to buy it, it'd probably be worth 300 quid in a month. Um, yeah. But I'm not that kind of scalper, so I'm going to leave it to the people that um, that would get a lot out of this. But yes, I wish it was £80. Then I think that sounds more like what it should be. It'd be more, more fit in your blood. I mean, this is the problem, really. We know. I know it's going to... If I don't pick it up, it's going to be like the Stray Cat Rock collection or the Battle of Honor and Humanity or even Fuma Prison Scorpion collections where... You're going to get this one price point, and that's as really going to be as low as it's going to go. Because as soon as they run out of this run, those damn uh, traders are just going to jack up the prices. And they're just going to put it up to stupid prices, which no one is ever going to pay. Which amuses me the fact they're stuck with this lump of plastic forevermore. But at the same time, it's sort of really annoying the fact that someone has this thing that, you know, you would enjoy and cherish. And they just want to, you know, hit a price margin, so... It's um, you know, it's a it's a it's a sort of tricky situation. I have pre-ordered, and knowing Amazon, if it's anything like the Zatoichi collection, they probably cancel it like a week before it's supposed to be sent out. Uh, but you know, I'd rather be involved and be and and have they have it denied in that way, just so that you know, I. I had a chance of owning a thing. But um, yeah, the box art um, is provided by Yuko Shimizu, who is uh, one of a series of artists providing um, interior design work for, for this collection. Yeah, I mean, the actual set itself, you get 15 films. So you get the everything from the original Godzilla in 1954 through to Godzilla in 1975. Um, the Shara era is a really strong run of films. There's a couple of duff ones in there, such as like Godzilla vs. Megalon, which introduces to Ultraman ripoff Jet Jaguar. Uh, we also get All Monsters Attack, which is really their attempt to try and um, tie it into kid themes as we've got this bullied teen who um, escapes in his mind to Monster Island where he hangs out with uh, Manila. Uh, who himself is also being bullied and it's a lot of clip show nonsense and it's just really a lot of tosh so you know those two aren't particularly great but 
you know what that's two films out of a 15 set collection also really surprised no sign of august ragone in any of the special features here as i would have thought that he would have been the go-to guy but we do get an interview with uh, critic tedo sato from 2011 I'm always confused when they put like these really dated interviews on discs, why they couldn't just have new ones. I mean, obviously, I understand with people like uh, Ishiro Hoda, they've got his uh, interview uh, from back in 1990. I mean, yes, that we can understand why he can't obviously record a new one. But when you have like these dated ones with just like a critic, it makes no sense. So. I mean, I'm guessing I'm guessing some of that is because it's criterion and they're about archival aren't they so they're not just this isn't just about archiving those films it's also archiving those interviews and those things like that in one place um i'll let you continue on but i am just gonna say i was out two minutes ago then i saw all that sleeve art yeah. It's got stuff by Art Adams and Becky Clune and, and Jeff Darrow, like comic artists I'm a real fan of. And I'm thinking, <laughs> that might help. Yeah, just keep talking. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you also get the deluxe hardcover book, which features an essay by cinema historian Steve Reif, um, as well as notes on the films by cinema historian Ed Godowinski. I guess our invitation got lost in the post somewhere, so never mind. Obviously, we didn't talk enough about Godzilla versus King Kong, did we? No, I know. Maybe, maybe they uh, when they do the second set, which I'm hoping they do. I hope that they do each of the eras because it'd be nice to have like a a collection. I mean, I'm not going to be one of these people who goes out and buys a whole load of Criterion just because some of the sleeves I don't particularly get, and some of the special features don't really do a lot for me. When you like look at the criteria, their cover for Videodrome, for example, is really great, but you know the special features aren't justify me spending that much on a blu-ray so but yeah i mean it's as i said this is uh these are all all important films for myself i mean so i'm I'm interested to see it and also there's a new interview with alex cox who i've just become such a groupie of the last year or so since i saw repo man so yeah well obviously he's an important part of my growing up with um his original his original host on movie drone so yeah hmm, and now i'm yeah, well, that'll be an Amazon page I'll be staring at for a bit. Yeah. <laughs> As I said, I will be uh, I'll be busily offering my services as a troll stripper, putting on clothes <laughs> for money. <laughs> so if you, if you need to, if you need someone for like uh, you know birthdays, funerals, bar mitzvahs, <laughs> just you know let me know. And anything, anything. We'll work out a deal. Hundred fifty quid, Elwood's yours, right, guys? That's yeah. that's. <laughs> Alternatively, we're also offering a new bonus where Steven will fight for your entertainment, Invisible Bear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'd probably lose to that. <laughs> don't wait to, don't wait to but you'd be entertained. <laughs> you'd be entertained. So yeah, that's obviously our big, our big one at the moment. I mean, it's great that in fact Criterion recognise the fact that UK fans do like Godzilla, and we deserve obviously for this set to be released over here. So really, really. You know, fingers crossed that everything goes according to plan, and uh, that will be heading to the post me on November twenty fifth. You know, you still have got a little bit of time to to get the funds together. There, it's not like Arrow where you have to pay straight away for your pre orders. So, no, and um, it's already number one bestseller in Thriller on Amazon. So thriller. I think we're not. I think we're not alone. I'm not really sure they're thrillers, but hey ho. Yeah. Um. So so yeah, that's obviously our big 
for this uh, this episode. Now, tonight, as I said, we're going to be talking about Sion Sono's Antiporno. Um, Sion Sono, obviously, being a director we've we've talked about many times on the show before, and he's the kind the guy that we've often said is has picked up the mantle of extreme cinema that Takashi Miike sort of left off when he entered his outlaw period, and um, it's surprising that Sion Sono, I mean, the guy who did Suicide Club, is sort of like been the one who's come to the forefront and really sort of like sparked this new interest in extreme Asian cinema. Um, I really never would have thought that he would have been the one to sort of like give us films such as like Coldfish or um, or X Hair Excisions and even his more sort of recent film which really sort of pushed him into the limelight such as like Tokyo Tribe and Why Don't You Play in Hell. So he's as of late, he's just constantly been this director who's surprised and produced this interesting content. And certainly with anti-porno, it only sort of continued, really. But for those obviously not familiar with, you know, the world of Roman porno, and uh, what would you say is sort of like the history for this very sort of overlooked subgenre? Well, funny you should ask, Elwood, because I have a little piece on this. <laughs> Um, all right, so what is this Roman porno thing? All right, so um, not unlike, I guess, American and British cinema, eroticism and sex in cinema, it took a long time before it was acceptable in Japan as well. However, if I tell you that it wasn't until 1946 that the first kiss was shown in a Japanese film, and even then it was half hidden behind an umbrella, <laughs> I think we kind of get the idea of... You know, we've talked before about lots of Asian societies being conservative. So culturally, Japanese people like to keep their public displays of affection to an absolute minimum. So that kiss, that half-seen kiss, caused a national sensation. All the newspapers, all the all the outrage and things like that. And that was just a, the, basically the impression of a kiss. So there's this conservative appearance outside. So sex, you know, they're not going to talk about sex. So think about America had the same sort of idea didn't it in this conservative phase um and had things like the Hays code so it's very similar so in the 40s and 50s we got a little bit more flesh shown in japanese films but it wasn't nudity or sexual activity but it might have been some bikinis and things like that but at the same time obviously in europe in, in outside of the united kingdom but in mainland europe and then films by people like russ mayer sort of certainly in the late 50s were coming in they got imported in japan no no fuss at all so there was an appetite for erotic images just as long as it didn't have japanese people in it but this slowly changed so like in america you got the sort of the single wheel stag films that began to surface and then in 1962 with satoro kobayashi's um flesh market we got what is generally regarded as the first of what we would call the uh, pinku aiga or pink film so um it's a borrowed English word, um, which is called a, a go-i-go. Um, so words that Japanese don't have, they steal from other languages, not just English. Um, traditionally, it's all been Chinese, but there are English words and other words that we talk about. So pink, um, and because the way Japanese say in, um, English words, they pronounce, or say their own language, they pronounce every letter. So they say pink. So that's why it's often written with a U on the end, but it's pink. Just the same way it's not Ringu, it's Ring. It's just that they say Ringer. Anyway, so yeah, so we got this uh, 1962 flesh market. Um, this this is what people are thinking is is, is the first Pinku uh, Agar film. Uh, that's a redundancy I've just said there. Um, it was made for 8 million yen back in 1962, and it sold 100 million yens worth of tickets. So they were on to something. 
Hmm. It started off as, as a sort of the, a, for independent film uh, studios and filmmakers, um, but in '65 there was a obscenity case um, with a famous sort of director and theatre director um, Tetsuji Takeji. Uh, Takeshi um, had a film called Black Snow. There was an obscenity trial around it. Tell me if this sounds something similar to obscenity trials in the UK, say around Lady Chatterley's Lover and the novel, because the public interest got really big and everyone went to see the film. And basically, <laughs> that was the um, that was the thing that that opened the floodgates. And so some of the bigger film companies started to get involved. Um, but still, this we're still talking about the 60s here, the late 60s. It's still mainly the independent um, producers doing this because they own their own cinemas. So what they would do, they'd trump out three of these films um, they'd, and they'd sell tickets to see the block of three of these, of these uh, nudie-cutie type of movies. In the 1970s, however, it all changes, and this is where this is where we're going to start getting to the, um, the Roman porno side of things. Um, it hit the mainstream, and we can usually talk about this in with the viewpoint of two different studios, um, Toei and Nikatsu. So Toei's films often uh, added sex to violence and torture, and um, lots of stories about wronged women embarking on revenge missions against their abusers. Um, and these films we often now call pinky violence films, and we've spoken about them before without being explicit about what they are. So the sort of the delinquent girl boss series, uh, the female prisoner 701 Scorpion series, they're all in this it's pinky toey's pinky violence. So there's there's breasts and sexual and there's activity and there's rapes and there's all sorts of nasty stuff going on but at the same time they quite often have really strong women that are going back and getting revenge on people so there's a lot of that a lot of films um with lots of wild use lots of films with women in prison and for some reason Tawi also um imported the non-sploitation sub 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 genre from italy so there's a whole bunch of non-based exploitation films which are in japan as well which is strange when you think they don't have a lot of catholics there and then nikatsu took things a step further um so we're talking early 1970s television had taken its toll on their audience and they were basically about to go out of business so Toei, um, as I said, sort of boosted their existing output with uh, Pinker Iga movies. But Nikatsu said, no, let, we're going all in. So Nikatsu were basically the oldest film studio in Japan at the time. Um, there's a really complicated story of how government forced the, um, the original 10 movie studios of Japan down to three um, during World War Two that basically meant a whole bunch of the old ones all combined together. But Nakatsu can trace its roots back to about 1912 or so. Um, but they just said they just shut down everything else they were making and spent the next 17 years making between 800 and 1,000 movies that are known by us these days as uh, Roman porno. So again, this is another two borrowed foreign words. Uh, the latter one, porno, I guess is pretty self-evident. That's taken from the English from pornography. Um, Roman is a bit more complicated you'll see in lots of places where people say it's a shortening of the english word romantic yeah. so romantic porno that's not what it is it's actually from the french um so it's from the french word for novel um which is a uh, well spelt roman but roman um so it's actually roman porno but uh, because they're stories that that are, that are pornographic rather than ro- romance because well if you've seen any of them romance 
does take part in some of them, but not most. That's like um, um, with the Italians. They their fellows are called giallo because it means yellow because all their fr- their the book fellows the are called yeah. yellow, yellow paper. <laughs> Yeah, but you will see it's quite interesting. I've read a whole bunch of articles sort of looking up this, and I would say it's, it's 50% of them still say it's called for romantic porno, which, um, and the rest of it seems really well researched. So I suspect there may be a little truth in both, and that, and that the romantic porno actually did get an understanding of what it was, but that's not what Nakatsu were, were talking about when they did it. Um, this wasn't a breeze for Nakatsu. They lost a whole bunch of talent over this movie, uh, uh, this move. So many of their directors, remember there's like a contract system going on. So many of their directors and stars just stopped working with the studios because they didn't want to work in what was effectively pornography. And I guess an example of this to show the difference between what Toei were doing and what Nakatsu did is that our old friend, um, Amiko Kaji of, um, Lady Snowblood and female prisoner, Scorpion fame. Um, she left Nikatsu because she didn't want to be in um, in Roman porno films. But then she went over to Towie and starred in some of their biggest, what we call the pink, pinky violence films. So, you know, there's there's different views of what they were doing there. So the Towie films, they mix sex and violence, but into sort of genre cinema. The Roman porno genre was basically the standard pinku films, but uh, on a bigger budget. They just set a couple of rules. Every film had to be around 60, 70 minutes in length, and they needed to include nudity or sex every 10 to 15 minutes. Other than that, filmmakers could do whatever they wanted. So this just didn't mean we just got um, sex and nudity, Um, although then, as now, you can't sew genitalia in um, Japanese films without the old... um, mosaicing or blurring or creative use of flower vases and televisions and things and poles and stuff like that um, so that was still the case but it what it actually created was this immense amount of um, experimentation both in subjects the sort of films that they were talking about and in the form and the way that they were doing it so this was a period of so if you think about um a lot of Japanese cinema up to then had been quite staid visually. Um, some might argue a lot of it still is, but there's an, it's certainly in the mainstream, but there was a lot of experimentation with quick cuts and strange zooms and using strange imagery and playing with the nature of reality versus dreams. Um, this really makes sense if you've ever watched any of this or these, these Roman porno films. They can be a bit weird, um, but it's where a lot of film directors and filmmakers cut their teeth very similar to how later on like the v cinema the home the home video market raised people like takashi maiki so the first film that, that, that went under this roman porno label was um shiguro nishimura's apartment wife affair in the afternoon now this film was popular and it had a few sequels um it had 20 direct sequels <laughs> over the next 17 years and there were loads of unofficial ones as well so it it, it, it spawned on its own you know more, we could have a um, criterion collection of these although i suspect it would be a diminishing return don't give them um, ideas i mean they're already, they're already <laughs> basically put churning out every wes anderson movie as a criterion <laughs> collection so don't give them ideas 
so they so the, but the hits kept coming they were really really popular and roman porno itself spawned its own subgenres. so it wasn't just this sort of there was a popular line of snm theme films they had their own they copied toey and did the violent pink line of movies um but most of these films are actually um designed to be and you're not gonna believe this date movies for couples the idea was is that you go out on a date with your girlfriend watch one of these 60 minute films with her which would be a like a drama and when we talk about other films that we'll, um, we might recommend, I'll talk about one of these. And then, but there's every 10 minutes, there's a bit of sex or some breasts going on or something like that. So, and it's not even that. It also, like in Japanese critics' top 10 films of the year that they do at the end of every year, everybody had one or two of the Roman porno films peppered in amongst them. So it's like, it's like a legitimate films that just happen to contain sex. So what we mustn't do is confuse them with pornography which is um, something slightly different, which is what happened. This all went off the board in the 1980s because, just like in the West, standard pornography became really much more accessible due to the preponderance of videocassettes. And the IRIN, which is the Japanese film rating board, went a lot harder on the... Um, censorship side of things and more specifically the labeling of stuff so now the roman porno films were marked very much as pornography was the profits dropped by 37 percent overnight and basically the katsu had gone all in on this and um by 1988 they released their final roman porno um from called bed partner they struggled along for a couple more years um distributing but not making films and um, standard films and pinky films but the race was run and in 1993 they declared bankruptcy so pink films are still made to this day but it's back in the hand of the independents um, and again you'll find people that are um who, who will become proper mainstream film directors who start in that industry but it's much more you know linked with the with the v cinema movement and basically if people want to watch porn they'll just get porno movies not um not pink films um so the famous name in the cats even though they went bust has been revived a couple of times so they exist again now and what happened back in 2016 the current owners of the name although if you look at their website you wouldn't guess that they weren't the same company <laughs> but they said let's um let's celebrate this let's do the roman porno reboot project so they got um five japanese film directors um and got them to make films inspired by inspired by roman porno films so we've got um um uh, akihiko shiota's wet woman in the wind which is very much like a just a modern remake of a roman porno film um isao yukisada's aroused by um uh, gymnopides um which is sort of a bit like that. Um, our old friend Hideo Nakata made a film, a sort of lesbian drama called White Lily. Um, Kazuya Shira... Oh, God. Shira Ishii has done a film called um, Dawn of the Felines, which is like a modern remake of a one... I think it's called Night of the Felines, um, which has really split everyone down the middle. Either people hate it or they love it. And then, of course... Leading us on to our discussion tonight, Sion Sono got um, produced, um, asked to write a film, and he got given the subject of art, and um, we got anti-porno. Okay. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, certainly just obviously touching on some of the things you said. And, I mean, you obviously mentioned about the pinky violence. And for myself, I mean, when, it look, when I look at, like, the Toei pinky violence, I always separated it from, like, the pink films and the Roman porno films that uh, Nekatsu were putting out, just purely because these were films where they were, like, very sort of strong female leads. Um, it was just a lot of sort of girl-on-girl sort of violence. They've got more in line with, like, the women in prison films uh, than they had with, like, these pink movies and we're saying when you look at things such as like terrifying Guy- girls high school uh lynch law classroom wonderful title from 1973 uh like sex and fury and you mentioned already the female prison scorpion films the tone of them is very different as i said from the pink movies and certainly the roman porno roman porno um well for we obviously think of it as sort of like this leaser thing but if we look back at like the classic uh pornography films such as like deep throat and behind the green door these were films produced with like proper storylines that also just happened to have graphic sex in them as well so it's very different from the pornography that we have now which is obviously more focused on the sexual element than the storytelling element and the directors of those films they saw themselves as being on the same level as mainstream filmmakers they saw a lot of pride in what they were making and certainly it was the team can we say for like the Katsu's um, output with the Roman porn ones because these are directors who were taking great pride in in their work even like assigning themselves such as titles such as like king and they even had like three different queens um, obviously starting with um with kazuko uh shekawaka i'm gonna apologize i probably butchered that as well who as you mentioned already i mean she was like in the first one apartment wife fair in the afternoon and really as as times go on much like with pornography the sort of taste sort of change and that's as it gets sort of like more sort of sleazy but certainly when we look at those early films um they have got a lot in line with like what the american pornography industry was putting out at the time perhaps a little nods to the european cinema as well because and i can understand why people would see these as date movies it's not like when we watch taxi driver and uh, travis takes uh betsy to see that swedish um <laughs> fertility movie <laughs> <laughs> um it's not that sort of like um as i say it's not got that sort of sort of deviant nature to it because i said these were when you look at films such as like De- deep fruit um they have actually got these sort of like proper story story and storylines too and you can see now why people obviously look looks like labels such as like vinegar syndrome who are releasing like classic pornography and they you know they critique and they review it like any other sort of film i mean it's, for myself it's not a field I'm particularly interested in, even though the censorship side is always interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, certainly with the when it comes to Roman pornography, I think it's like one of my my grey areas when it comes to sort of like Asian cinema. It's, it's just one of those areas that never sort of like grabbed me. And even and as you said, even now they're sort of like revitalizing. I don't know what the current state is when we sort of like look at the output of the the seven lucky gods of pink. Uh, with like directors like uh, Toshida Uno and Shin uh, Amoka, and their sort of output. I mean, have you watched any of the more recent pink films? Um, or no, I mean, I, I got to be honest, like you, I'm not. Um, it's not an area that's particularly fascinated me. Although doing the investigation for this has made me realise, like you were saying, that the difference between this and pornography is huge. Um, the point is, I guess, is that it spawned from a sudden release of Japanese uptightness in this um, in this world to enable like erotic 
images and erotic ideas to be put on the screen. Yeah. And I just found it fascinating. You know, Toei took it one direction. Uh, the Katsu took it another direction. There's this crossover. And, you know, for every one that could be a date movie, there are certainly ones that... Uh, I've talked before about Takashi Mike's Visitor Q and some of the things that happen in there. Well, some of them happen in some other Roman porno films as well. So <laughs> let's, let's. some of it is a bit out there. But I just find it fascinating. I find Japan always fascinating because of this this difference between the conservative public view and the mental world and wacky stuff that we see in cinema um, and this is just an example of that my understanding is is that the the modern stuff is, is is well made but it's got more in common with pornography than it has with new filmmakers using it as an avenue to come in and making films on the cheap um, it doesn't sell as well as just porno, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your point of view. Um, and I, I, I couldn't tell you, oh, yeah, I've, I've, I've seen that, or we're getting those released through, um, you know, we don't get to see them through film festivals and the like, which we did. At least three of these films of this reboot have been quite heavily shown at various yeah. film festivals around Europe and North America. I think the main sort of difference, especially with this reboot, is just the fact that you had more high-profile directors behind it. Um, certainly, when you like compare it to like the output of like uh, Pink Asia Incorporated, who, uh, when you look at their back catalogue and you can see the sort of modern Pink movies, it, as I said, it's very hard for the without looking too deeply into it to sort of like know where the line is between pornography and, and where pink cinema is. And certainly, I mean, these films have obviously, they've got their own film festivals and um, oh. they still have, like, awards. I mean, you still have the occasional one which, like, comes out and, like, crosses boundaries such as, like, The Glamorous Life of uh, Shekiko Hanai from 2003. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> I've seen that. Have you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> when I first started my very first Asian film blog, I went through so every Asian film I'd watched and I got to that was about number seven or something and it was just oh. but it's, it's everything I've just said yeah it's an experimental film with boobs and <laughs> it's not something that's um, it's not a clear and easy watch yeah it's the, 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 the director I can't remember who the director is but the director's trying stuff and ideas out um, and you can draw lines from that to things which I do enjoy. Um, the films of Mikey, the films of Sono, the films of some of the weirder stuff that we have never, we haven't even talked about some of the stuff, the types of Japanese films yet on this 32 episodes in, and we still not covered the Machine Girl, for example, you know. Um, so you can see the link between that as a, as a piece of pornography and the sort of wild and wacky ideas that those other directors are coming up with. But, oh, it was a chore <laughs> because it doesn't have, it's charmless. I think that's the word yeah. I would have for it. Now, obviously, on to tonight's uh, selection. I mean, as I said, this is... Uh, it's described as a Japanese drama film, according to Wikipedia. Um, whether you can describe it as that, I mean, or or art house experience, I think is really up to the viewer. I mean, this is a film that I really enjoyed the first time I, I saw it, and I feel that it kind of lost something on the repeat viewing, as we're going to in a bit bit more but the film itself it uh, stars uh ami tomite as a who's introduced as this renowned artist and writer um kyoko and she's basically like lives in this very sort of minimalistic apartment and um all the time she's sort of like she seems to be like providing her own 
her own biography to who it's very unclear and at the same t- and it's around this point that her assistant arrives and is sort of ritualist- ritualistically sort of abused and humiliated by uh, Kyoto while at the same time we've got um, th- this journalist from a magazine that's come in to interview her along with a photographer and they all get caught up in this scene which gets uh, increasingly I don't know. It's very hard to describe what best way to put this. Sexy results follow. I think is probably going to be the cleaner way because depending on what you like is going to depend on what you're getting out of that sequence. And uh, just when we think, oh wow, this is a little more explicit than we find, uh, director yells cut, and we realise that we're actually watching a film in production. From here, strangeness occurs um, as we will try to unravel between us. Um, but Stephen, I mean. What was your sort of initial thoughts on anti-porno? So I remember we talked about this when I first watched it, and I'm thinking about 18 months ago. Something like that. It's been a while. Yeah, I, I, I remember when I watched it the first time. And I guess I got to sort of factor this in. I'm a huge fan of Sion Sono, not just his sort of more popular stuff, but he, he did a whole series of quite straight films as well, um, like Land of Hope and um, <laughs> Himazu, which um, sort of bridge... That, that that dark, guilty of romance, cold fish era with this sudden outburst of of creativity where he turned into Keshi Mikey and made about 20 films in about a week is what it feels like, you know, which are varying quality. And this was part of that. And because you see on Sono, all his movies seem, well, I'd say about two thirds of his movies get an automatic release over in the UK via third window films or, or, or one of the sort of groups like that. Mm. So we're always getting, we're always getting the, um, those films. So, oh, yeah. So I, I think most of those films in that period have come out here and I watched it and I'd watched it just after I'd seen tag, which is another film he did at this time. And I thought they were both, this is particularly, I think this is his most beautiful film. So visually, I was blown away by it. And the problem I had with it was, and it's the same problem I've got with Tag, but from a different story, is that I think he's trying to be critical of the subject matter, which is quite brave when someone's paying you to reboot their um, <laughs> their format to actually set it up as a, as a, as a critique of of pornography and of women's place in Japan and how women are used in pornography and so on and so forth. Um, but then to basically also use the camera and the male gaze on a woman who basically walks around naked nearly the entire film, a very attractive young lady naked, seemed to me to counter his argument, which is the same way I have in Tag, where he's trying to criticise a certain sort of fetishization of um, schoolgirls another famous Japanese trope by fetishizing a schoolgirl, and and I get confused by what Sono's trying to do with this. Now, interestingly, with that eighteen month of distance and rewatching the film, and also watching some of the 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 making of that was on the Blu-ray that I had, I might understand what he's trying to do more, but I still can't justify it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, this is a film when you look on the letterbox reviews. Everyone, else, everyone seems to be getting these very deep things from it, and I certainly wasn't getting a lot half the things that people have been been sort of taken away from it. As you said already, we got the criticism of the um, 
I said the whole Roman porno industry. Uh, at the same time, we've got commentary that can be made on female sexuality and just the exploitation of women within within the sort of genre. And it's all these sort like, and there's other people like me saying that it's making like comments on pornography and that everything in life is shit, as we're pretty much announced at the end of the film. And uh, yeah, it's. This is a film that's probably best not to try and watch it, you know, seven o'clock in the morning before you've had your coffee. As I found as attempt to rewatch it, as there's a lot of heavy imagery going on here, and it's not the most coherent of films, especially from Sonner, who, despite dealing in weirdness throughout the last chunk of his career, has always managed to somehow have that that line of storytelling for his films that perhaps Mike was often missing with his outlaw period. So then when we look at films such like Dead or Alive, which we mentioned before, has got a number of great set scenes, but a lot of boring scenes in between. And it felt very much like it's been made upon the flow. With Sonna, we never really seem to have that problem. Is there's always a, a plot line to follow. And certainly by the end, you have some semblance of an idea of what you've watched. This really isn't the case when it comes to Andy Porno, as he seems to be attempting to do the same trick that uh, we had saw in Irreversible, where the film is being played in backwards. As as the film in particular, it sort of focuses on these two actresses, uh, Kyoto and Nuriko. Uh, Nuriko played by uh, Mariko Tatsuti. And we see them essentially change roles where in the beginning we've got Kyoto is like, you know, she's the very dominant one and she's abusing Naroko and humiliating her. We get a bit further into the film and the roles have sort of switched around and we get these sort of like, um, the, the changing of power a little bit early on, certainly when we first get the sort of like revealed that we're watching a film being made and we find out that the actress playing Naroko is actually the more experienced, um, actress on set and when it comes to Kyoto uh, she's the inexperienced this is her first film and she's basically doing it as she's wanting to capture um, this sort of sleazy side of her to that this um, sort of side that she's been really sort of told to repress and that you know you should not have uh, sexual sort of feelings and you should just repress these feelings because it's not what's expected of you so there's a lot of deep themes going in here and i'm i'm hoping that we're going to provide some sort of semblance of decent criticism on it so yeah i mean it's 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 a film of two halves isn't it i i the the, up until the director says cut yeah so to start off with it's a bit weird but i kind of get what's going on yeah within the within the film within the film shall we say yeah, um, you know, and it is a critique on on pornography and art, and uh, maybe um, quite quite a critical critique on art actually, and the and the shallowness of it, and and the facts, you know, the, and and the power play that goes on between um, Kyoko and Noriko. And then when he says cut, and they flip it all. And, and they show that the power between, um, let's say, um, the actresses, let's say between Amy and Mariko, that's, that way is different. And you think, okay, well, that's interesting, but that's um, what you're going to do with that. And they don't really do anything with that. And then they sort of delve into into Kyoko's past, is what they basically spend. But she's kind of delving it into it while still going forward with the film being made, I think. <laughs> and, and then it kind of blurs 
what's going on. So yeah, that that's that's just just try and cover some of the things that we find out about her. Um, firstly, that she's underage, which is part of my problem with what Sono's trying to do here. So if he's trying to say this girl's underage, I mean she's not uh, the the actress is not underage, but she's playing an underage girl, and we're seeing her in very visually naked ways and um, with some quite sort of strong. It's not. I don't think she actually has sex with any. Well, she does, doesn't she? Yes, because she basically gets a guy off the street to lose her virginity with. Um, she has a strange life at home where her father is remarried and constantly is shagging his her stepmum. Um, her sister, who we find out was the girl much earlier in the film who couldn't have been in the original film that we were watching because she's a ghost, um, I think committed suicide. It's never entirely clear. But she's not around anymore, and so that's haunting her. So there's all these things that are playing her, which have basically driven her to go and act in a porno film, which she's then talking about while she's making the porno film. Blasey, mate, I, I, I don't think we are because <laughs> I found it. Um, I, if that's if that's her backstory, then that's pretty rote, isn't it? That's pretty routine stuff, um, and I wanted something more out of it. I think much like Memento, this is a film which works better with like the shocker and the shock incident surprise of the scene scene being shown to you. So not knowing what's going to lie ahead on the journey is where the film constantly manages to surprise and the fact that we got constant twists and the fact that we have these Lynchian moments thrown in, such as there's a scene where in the opening where she puts on projector and she's watching... Um, a young girl being forcibly taken in the woods. Now, later we obviously find out that it's her, and later still we find out that this is also a projection that's showing in her head. So, it's... We go on this 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 constantly changing journey with these, these characters, what we think about them, what, who they actually are, and at the same time, it's, it's very arresting in... In, in both visually and what Sono is trying to do, he's certainly creating a film which is very fiercely original. Um, at the same time, it's a film which is very sort of caught up in its subtext and these points that he's trying to obviously make um, about it. I mean, there's there's elements such as like the lizard in the jar, which I know people have often have like said that oh no, this is like representation of the repressed sexuality and stuff and. Well, it's other people can just read it. Is it's just a little in Java because it's freaky and Sonal thought it'd be fun to put it in there, the same way that we see like Nicholas Cage hallucinating lizards in uh, uh, Bad Lieutenant Port of Call uh, New Orleans. Yeah, so I mean, I, I saw the lizard stuck in the jar as just as a, as a metaphor for her. She's she. I mean, every review you see calls her apartment a gilded cage. It's the same idea that you know she's she's got this wonderful life, this novelist, artist, whatever she is, but she can't actually leave. She can't actually survive outside. She's she's just like the lizard. She's stuck. She's stuck in that in that bottle. And that lizard's too big to ever get out. She's probably too big to ever go back into the real world again. And there's more of it. There's um, there's one of those um bird cages with a wooden bird in it as well it's the, the place is full of stuff like that and it's full of imagery and ideas and i think i thought i'm all right with that i'm all right with this being an art piece and it's but it i don't think it's as clever as it thinks it is and it feels like it feels like sixth form poetry <laughs> it's like it feels like when you hang out with a philosophy major and it, they're sort of like they think they're being deep but they're just being a jackass 
Yeah. So 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 when I saw it the first time, I, I was a bit. I had all these thoughts going in my head. And the second time I saw it, which was this week, when I rewatched it for this, I actually I was actually getting a little bit more out of it. But I was also quite bored <laughs> because because it's a bit one volume, isn't it? It's a bit screechy. And then I watched the making of. And the way it opens is, is with a with an interview with Sono where he's meant to be on the promotional tour for this, and people are asking him, you know, why are you making a film on this? And he basically says, you know, oh, and he just says two phrases: "I don't like Roman, and <laughs> I don't like porno." As it, this is nothing I'm interested in at all, um, and and that's how they're advertising the film. And then um, Amy Tomite, the the, the lead actress. It's just, oh yeah, I really like Roman porno films. I really enjoy it. Oh, I've always been interested in that. And you think, well, that's a lie because you weren't born when the last one was made. <laughs> so so I I doubt it. Um, and so again, it's almost as if those interviews are also part of the film where they're kind of sort of staging something. And I don't know. And, and I, I just don't know. Is he being, is he biting the hand that feeds him by criticising these films and this movement and even the very idea of it even though he's been quite heavily criticized for how he portrays females um and let's let's just let's just talk about a film that he made um in fact he made it twice he made a tv movie and a movie called the virgin psychics one year before which is based on the fact of women's breasts increase um their psychic powers right so He's not on a very solid grounding here, and and so this just sort of blows my mind. But I don't think it's as clever as I think it thinks it is. Um, and I think yeah, I call it sixth form poetry, or exactly as you say. You know, you're talking about somebody who's read a lot of books, but maybe doesn't have a lot of knowledge. And I just think, just like with Tag, I think he's he needs to maybe point that camera at himself a little bit more rather than pointing at every body else and saying hey look how clever I am so, but at the same time there's, while I'm watching the, obviously the film I was constantly brought back to like the the quote when they were talking about the director who were like making those early films for Nakatsu and the fact that they like enjoyed the artistic freedom that they were given over compared to if they were making more traditional fare and I think certainly with this project someone has been given more free reign to do whatever he wants and it certainly shows us there seems to be a number of shots that he's making just purely because that he knows he can't work him into other films um i mean we've got we got the whole scene where like kyoto goes to the bathroom and it sort of like runs that line between like eroticism and scatology and that you kind of wonder why you're watching this and you, you know you kind of question your life choices that you know you sit here what you do spending like an hour and a bit of your life watching this attempt to blend art and pornography into the same movie and there's certain scenes such as especially when we get to the end where everything's going pretty much full gonzo at this point and we've got uh kyoto who's we see her being interviewed for why she wishes to take part in the role and there's this this long panel of um producers and and directors and they're basically humiliating her um and her responses to questions they basically make her strip off and you know certainly after the the uh, the whole 
scandals in Hollywood with Weinstein and uh, Cole being exposed for their practices and casting couches. It really sort of uh, stung a little more than perhaps I think Sono intended for this one. It sort of like rings a little more true to home for, especially when we consider how fantastical the film is. Um, and part of me kind of wish that they'd. But but did you did you feel that did you feel that she was a character who was being abused that she was no the victim here because and that's that's my problem with it I felt that she was saying you know what life shit I'm going to be a whore I think she pretty much says that yeah and that's how I can be a great person I'm going to be a whore and this is my body my body's not slutty enough make it slutty I'm not always and I. I didn't know, I didn't understand the point he was making because if you're trying to say all women are really hard done by, not just in in movies, not just in porno movies, but in Japan or in the world I don't know how having your protagonist embrace everything which is wrong with it (laughs) is is making the point. I was, I don't know maybe I'm not Yeah, I mean obviously I mean, as I said, I mean we're drawing obviously comparisons to the whole Weinstein sort of scandal there with that sequence, but you're completely right in saying the fact is that she's very much in control of the situation even though she's being very sort of humiliated in the questions they're asking and the fact that she's stripping off, um, she's very much sort of adamant that she's doing this because of she's wanting to it feels as i said it's bringing it back to that female sexuality thing and i'm sure that there's a lot more smarter people out there who've read more interesting papers than we have on the subject um or just any papers on the subject because i mean and you know we're perhaps coming off as a pair of knuckleheads trying to dissect this and trying to address higher themes to this thing but you know it's as I said, this is a film which you can, depending on your viewpoint, your own personal politics, you're going to approach it and view it in different ways. And certainly when we have that sequence, and as you said, she's there saying, I want you to make my body slutty. And when she goes out and she picks the guy up off the street, this it all comes after the scene with her parents sort of like chastising at the table for having sort of sexual thoughts. And just the fact she's going out there and taking control of her own sexuality. Yes, it's a very non-traditional sort of way, and it's sort of like a way that's going to be frowned upon by society, certainly, because, you know, being a good person and pornography don't necessarily go hand in hand. And I, I have to kind of respect the fact that Sono doesn't have a... being like, have this sort of damaged home life, and that's the reason she goes into goes into making wanting to make a Roman porno movie I think we have to give him that sort of credit to him he doesn't go that sort of cliche route of oh I had a bad life I was abused and that's the reason I'm going into this path yeah and 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 to be fair again in the, in that making of it was what I found was interesting also so a lot of it was just literally him making it and we had interviews with the, with the directors and he basically said at the end he said a lot of people aren't going to like this film and he was almost going out of it. And, and all everybody, the two actresses said, we don't understand the script. Uh, Ami Tamita basically said, I'll do anything he says. Right. He's a god to me. I think she's, I think she's appeared in some of his other films in this, in this, in this burst of um, creativity that he's had. She just basically said, because remember, he's not just a filmmaker. He's an artist, a novelist. He's one of these creatives. And he's just managed to get these people just to make it. And he, absolutely hasn't sat there and described it he hasn't he hasn't said oh i was a big fan of those films i want to do an homage to it or i'm a critic of it and i don't want it i just 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 doesn't interest me i'm going to put this out there 
and you make of it what you want. So actually, I think he'd be quite happy that we were sitting here struggling with it because I think that that maybe at the end of the day is the point that this 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 film doesn't come with a consistent and obvious message. It's it's a complicated subject and there's complicated stuff on both sides. And I wonder I wonder if that's his point because he's not sitting there and telling us what to think he's just giving us some ideas on the screen and giving us a chance to make up our own minds mm. I don't know maybe I'm giving him too much credit again I think you're saying you've shown a lot of light in by the fact you were saying obviously with uh, I mean to my basically saying I do wear free ass because it sort of really comes into play when we get to like the final scenes of the film where she's basically headbutting a cake to death um, and then she's just covered in paint for about a good five minutes um, uh, while her <laughs> a father and stepmother are engaging in in the heated uh, sex beside her, and it's sort of like, oh, that's the path we're going, is it? So yeah, and that 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 that's when it felt a bit like sixth form poetry to me. When um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I used I used to write crap like that when I was seventeen and eighteen. That um, <laughs> you know, that oh, how can I end the story? I'll just end it in a mad blowout. I mean, and and I'm not saying I'm anywhere near as talented as Sion Sono. Believe me, I'm not. But I actually also know that he's a lot more talented than me. Maybe that I don't know. That just feels like um that feels like an artist's way of ending a film, not a filmmaker's way of ending a film, if that makes sense, yeah. Definitely so. That, I think... that, it, that it's ending in a statement rather than ending any kind of narrative. Yeah, it's it's definitely got that tinge of breakup poetry, you know, where you, where you think you're, you, that no one's as smart as you. You're just like, the that no one can possibly see the world as clear as you. And that seems to be, as you say, it seems to be what's going on at the end is just that he's just going off on his own sort of tangent. And you kind of wish that someone was just like, just like, you know, Put the head in the door. It's like you're okay there. So no, you you were alright with this one. How about we go bowling? We'll pay. <laughs> and he's like, no, <laughs> I want to be alone and make my weird anti-porno but, movie. <laughs> but you know, for all that, I probably enjoy. I probably did enjoy it more the second time because I had more going on. But I also got a bit bored of it. Yeah. But I do think this is his most attractive film. The 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 set. The the lighting, the colours, the the way it's the way it's staged, um, even that stuff at the end with all the paint dripping down and and that is 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 looks beautiful on my TV. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's a film made for a widescreen UHD TV, right? It's um it's bold primary colours. Um, I really want to see when we when you know goodbye your next TV when you do like. You know the sound test where you like putting your copy of like the Matrix, uh, yeah, Matrix shootout sequence and like oh, I want to test the colors. Oh, I'm just gonna put on this copy of Anti Porno's paint sequence just so I can test the colors. I think I think it, I I can see a Samsung advert already, can't you? <laughs> going on, <laughs> um, not. But no, I, I you know I'm gonna get I'm gonna give it some credit. I think in terms of that, when you think how quickly the film was made within those other films that he's making. So if you look at something like um. Oh, what else? Whispering Star. Have you seen Whispering Star, which he made in the same same period? Um, which is a film I might bring back to us, actually. Another <laughs> that is that is the most lo-fi sci-fi film ever, right? It, 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 and if you haven't seen it, you, you won't know what I mean. But it, it really is a really low, a lo-fi sci-fi film that's in sepia tone, 
Okay. Yeah, there's no there's no color really to it at all. It's basically one person. It, it's 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 worse sci-fi than 1960s Doctor Who. Yeah, but um, it's actually making really strong. It's a really powerful film. It's my favorite of those. But yeah, if you compare that, he made that film, this really quiet, personal, sepia tone film. Probably whilst making this film, whilst pretty much making um why don't you play in hell yes. whilst making tag whilst making um the virgin psychics and the tv show about that whilst making um two sinjuko swan movies you know that that i've got to have great um i've got to have respect for i can't think of many other people who could juggle so many different ideas and themes and styles of movie at the same time and of course they won't all work um and i'm not sure i i don't think i still don't think anti-porno worked um i don't think it made the points it could have done um and i think the whole reboot as well it has a huge flaw all five films you know they're they're all you know they, they all take different views some are some are slavishly um committed to the roman porno aesthetic and um rules of it and and at the other end you've got sona who's, who's sort of inwardly criticizing it i think i think we're agreeing on that <laughs> and um but all five directors are men and in this modern age luckily nakatsu i think have accepted that and i think that they're going to do another one where they are going to involve female directors so we might get slightly different ideas because I think that was it's, it's this thing about the male gaze you know it's a classic thing to criticise pornography with it's always about men leering over women isn't it or men leering over men um, it's very rarely about women leering over anybody and um, this felt very leery <laughs> cool um, yeah I've got nothing else to talk about this one unless you No, I think I think I think we've took talk I think I certainly feel I've talked around in circles about it long enough. Okay. I think I think it's I think it's a film worth seeing. I don't think it's Sono's best. No. Um uh, but I think it's in I think it's interesting but I'm I'm dubious of some of these people who have written such glowing things like you say on on various review sites and letterbox and things like that where they seem to think it's some astonishing uh, essay into pornography in society because I don't think it is right um, and I'm right <laughs> <laughs> okay for reviewing if you wanted to see something similar <laughs> if at all uh, after anti-porno where'd you go right so I have come up with two films okay um which is better than I was doing last episode, but I could barely come up with one. <laughs> um, so, um, I'll actually choose a real Roman porno film now. One that I actually reviewed for Eastern Kicks, with that, my very first Roman porno. Um, it's called Abnormal Family, Older Brother's Bride. Alright? Um, and uh, it's it's basically like a family drama. Um, there's a family. Uh, the older brother's got married. He's come home with his 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 new wife, and she's um she's a little minx, and she's a bit into her sex. Um, his younger brother likes the look of her, and he uses her as his um his object of lust. Um, the father 
who sort of sits there remembering times with his wife. The little sister goes and works in a, um, well, it's called a soap land. It's basically a massage parlour, but in water. And, um, oh yeah, and the, fa- the father's trying to have an affair with a, with a hostess. It's, it's, it's basically a 60, 70 minute film with topless or, or, or sex shot every 10 minutes. It's a Roman porno. What's genius about it is that it's directed by Masayuki Sio. And if you don't know who Masayuki Sio is, he, um, he's a really fantastic Japanese film director. So this was his first film. So this was his break. This is what I was talking about being a, 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 a feeding ground for, um, for, for, further talent um he made um he's made some quite popular films sumo do sumo don't i just didn't do it which i think i've talked about on another episode um and most famously he made the film shall we dance which was remade um oh, it was made in hollywood and was quite popular i want to say richard gear was in it but he's yeah. a really good director um and that's not even the best bit about it. The best bit about it is he's done it in the style of his hero, and he's done it in the style of an Ozu film. <laughs> so it's 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 a it's a it's a it's a sex drama, but done in the style of of you know one of the one of the what's known as and I'm doing the old bunny ears here for you, Elwood, one of the sort of the Japanese greats of um of form of cinema. Um, so what you can get out of this film is you can see a bit about what Roman porn is about. You can see the early work of actually one of my favourite Japanese directors. And you can get a, a lesson on how Ozu does film as well. That's the first film. So that's proper Roman porno. Um, the second film is, I think it's another film I might have talked about before. It's called The Makeup Room. Um, it's from 2015, directed by Kei Morikawa. It's a low-budget sort of drama comedy, basically set in the back room of a porno set. Um, so it basically it, um, covers the story of a number of girls and guys that are involved in making a porno film. You don't see the porno film getting made. You just see the people come in, talk about their lives, why they're doing it, all the while while a woman's sort of sorting out their makeup, and it's all been set up in a hotel room or something like that. It's not terribly long. Um, it's probably 70, 80 minutes long, but it's really well acted and really interesting and at times really funny. And I think as a film which is talking about how being in pornography affects women and why women might do it and the positives and the negatives from that, it does a million times better job than anti-porno does. Fantastic. Um, for myself, I'm going to be a few, few random directions. Uh, first up, of course, would be Snake of Jim. Uh, which is by Shinja, uh, Shinya Tsukamoto. Uh, this is a film that uh, we've actually talked about doing on the show previously, and I think he got knocked out uh, by Eastern Condors for our pre- on the previous episode. This is a film shot in a very interesting blue tinge to it, um, and certainly sort of very for Tsukamoto, a very traditional uh, an- anonymous J- Japanese metropolis. Um, the film itself it follows the tells the tale of a shy career woman called um, Rinko and her hygiene-obsessed workaholic husband. Um, the two being forced to explore their sexuality in a number of interesting creative ways uh, when a mysterious stalker type takes an interest in, first of all, Rinko and then her husband as well, uh, drawing them into a world of very bizarre sexual freedom. Uh, this is certainly an experience and one that we'll be 
no doubt diving into on a later episode. Uh, so we've constantly talked about doing a show on Sakamoto, but he keeps getting sort of shunted um, for other things, just normally because of the timing not feeling particularly right, or it being like a billion degrees over here and nobody wants to talk about sleazy movies in that heat. And I think... Um... Um, I think he also. I think he also. It's one of those. He's one of those directors that, that the film that we probably would talk about <laughs> is one of those. What is one of those um, sacred cows? That I think we do tend to leave for our um, a bit like Battle Royale. Yeah, we left it for our twenty fifth episode. Yeah. Um, Kira and I think um, Tatsuya the Iron Man probably is in that kind of formative film for both of us that we probably want to make sure we can do it justice. So I think we both I think we both say it's on our list, but we'll put it back to another time, a more appropriate time. Um, on the more comedic side, um, first up we've got uh, R100, a film which, if we're to believe the rating, is not to be viewed by anyone under 100. Uh, directed by Hitoshi Matsumoto, uh, the film follows a businessman who joins a mysterious BDSM club where basically at any given moment one of their dominatrix can t- will turn up and beat the hell out of him um, each encounter um, coming with highlighting the particular skill of the particular dominatrix and yes they have some very interesting skills such as the goddess of spitting and the goddess of swallowing um, but it's a film which goes in some very random directions, but at the same time is pretty funny in just the most random of ways. But I think this can be expected when we certainly look at uh, Matsumoto and his filmography. I mean, he's the man who uh, obviously gave us most notably before this Big Man Japan, which was a sort of parody of kaiju movies. Um, and another film that I really want to get into at, at uh, some other point. But I mean... Is he someone on your radar at all, Stephen? Uh, I'm aware of him. Okay. I've got R100 on a, on a, on a. I've seen that. Um, I want to see Big Man Japan, but yeah, he's um, he's kind of in that wacky envelope, isn't he? That probably we don't get enough of outside of um, again our friend Mister Mikey. Mm. So. Uh, I'll be, I'll be up for watching something of his at some time. Yeah. Um, still on the wacky side of things, we've got uh, Pang Ho Chung's uh, Vulgaria from 2012. Uh, this one I caught on the BFI player. And, uh, yeah, this is a film about a struggling movie producer um, called uh, To Wei Chung, here played by Ta- Chapman To, who is uh, roped into trying to create a sequel to the Shaw Brothers' um, Confessional Concubine concubine which they plan to name the creatively confessions of two concubines um this is a film which is basically a sex comedy that you know it hits more than it misses but also features a scene where the where the producer and his director have to seal a deal by essentially having sex with a mule um this is definitely one of the more random ones out there and sounds absolutely bonkers on paper, but it somehow works when you watch it. Uh, but definitely a more interesting recent discovery. And uh, I think if you've watched Andy Porno and can deal with that randomness, then I think uh, Vulgaria will probably offer you more of the same, but perhaps in a slightly less artistic way. 
Which is a shame because Pang Ho Chung is Edmund Edmund Pang, as he's known, is um is one of my favourite directors, and I've got to say, Volker is my least favourite of his films. Oh really? Because, but I I think I think you I think it hits more than it misses, but I think it misses quite a lot. Um, he also made another he he, he um he's another one of these people that does writing and um sometimes you think he's made a film but actually he's only produced it he produced a fucking risible sex comedy at in or around the same time and you think well you know you're criticizing in one hand and making them with the other <laughs> it was a bit um a bit a bit weird i mean it, it, it's a good film but it wouldn't be the it wouldn't be the pang ho chong film that i would have looked at yeah because i mean if i've been telling You've... I've talked about him before, haven't I? Yeah, yeah you recommended uh, Lo- uh, Love and a Puff before to myself, and certainly you yeah. made that back-to-back with Dreamhouse, which I know you've spoken highly of as well before. So Dreamhouse, and um, oh god, what's the other one? Um, the, 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 this, this, this actually, this actually pairs up quite nicely. He's done a film called Trivial Matters. Trivial Matters is just a, is like an anthology film of just little things that he's written. Um, which also hits more than it misses, but misses quite a lot as well. But it'll have all the same sort of character. He's got a he's got a cast. He now makes slightly more drama films, but he's got a lovely a lovely sense of dialogue, which probably we don't get because you and I don't speak Cantonese. But um, I think he's probably you know, the, the 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 best living um, Cantonese film director that we've got. Um, so yeah, it's a it, don't get me wrong, Volgaire is a great film, but it's not one of his best, but that's just because all his films are so great. Fantastic. Um, well, that brings us to the end of uh, tonight's episode. We hope you've uh, enjoyed it. Um, for the next episode, it is forward to my pick again. And um, I'm going to take, we're going to look at a director who I think, again, he's one of those sacred cows there on the list. So uh, we'll probably look at him a little earlier than plan but we're going to look at Heio Miyazaki and in particular we're going to look at the castle of Castrologo is obviously noteworthy for being unofficially one of the first Studio Ghibli movies um, released in 1979 and featuring the iconic character Lupin the Third Master Thief um, a character it's kind of interesting really because obviously when we look at the Studio Ghibli movies that many of their characters are now used for marketing the most the way that Disney characters are, but when we obviously look consider Lupin the Fed, there's one sort of group of uh, agents of fans who obviously know who Lupin the Fed is, and then we've got others people who consider themselves fans of Studio Ghibli, but really never connect with uh, the character of Lupin the Fed. So um, we're going to obviously check this out and uh, definitely uh, be interested in revisiting that one. So, And it's a film I've never seen, so I'll be looking forward to watching it as well. Um, It's on Netflix now, so... Yeah, that would be cool. I'll I'll, I'll enjoy that. And I think you're right, Cagliostro looks looks absolutely the fine way of saying it to me. Um, As always, uh, if you haven't done already, uh, please do like and hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you happen to be listening to this, be it on... Be it on Anchor or iTunes or Google Play or Spotify, um, we love to see those ratings and it helps raise the profile of the show as well. You can also connect with us on social media, be it Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. Uh, most recently, we managed to get 100 likes for a post which puts us in there with, you know, the pretty girl territory. And trust um, me. I mean- I mean, mate, we can retire. I know. We're we're, we're influencers now, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, and uh, as always, we always love to hear from you. So uh, please let us know in the comment section what you thought of the show. You can uh, also get in touch with us via our website, which is asiancinemafilmclub.wordpress.com. And on there, you can find not only reviews, the movie vault, the anime vault. You can find our mixtapes, a complete archive of episodes. It's absolutely stacked with all that good stuff, um, as well as the contact form if you want to uh, get in touch with us and let us know what you think of the show or recommend us something. We uh, always love to hear from you guys. So. Until next time, thank you as always for listening. Uh, Stephen, is there anything you want to say before we go? No, um, just thank you for listening as well. Cool. Um, and uh, thank you, Elwood, for picking another interesting film for next time. Um, well, thank you again, and uh, we'll be back next time looking at Castle Cashelago. Kino no